This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter and don't get sick. BunnySlippers.com, they've got those cool, woolly, highland cow slippers that everyone thinks are super cool. They're all shaggy and woolly and gosh darn it, don't they keep your feet warm. Also, found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult movies. Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by them and whoever else our sponsor is and by the folks who listen to it, you. Want to help out the show? Get your name mentioned in the credits? Contact me in social media so I know because uh, I'm really bad at keeping track of this stuff. But uh, paypal.me slash pgttcm pgttcm.com Look for how to shop, be a patron, listen to all the episodes or all the episodes that are available currently, and find out more about the show. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer. Uh, I'm I'm super sick. I've been out of work for a couple of days because I've been so sick. Um, I've been kind of bedridden. I don't have the coronavirus. I know I live in Portland and I take mass transit everywhere. Um, I've been sick for a while and I've just been pushing it too hard and, you know, three podcasts, two jobs and everything else that I've got going on. But anyway, so, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to slow down on podcasts or anything else. I'm just going to try and take it easy and other stuff. So yeah, um, I have my my computer next to me in bed, so I decided to do this because I haven't been able to get into the studio for a bit, but I have this laptop here. So, sorry about the audio quality, and if you say, hey, what audio quality? Well, sorry for the audio quality in general. All right. Uh, remember, you can find the show at any podcatchers that you know and recommend it to your friends if, you know, something to listen to. And, you know, just, just tell them to skip the first three minutes. I always set up the first three minutes for uh, for this part. And then that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales and our monthly show, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Articulate Warbling, Dave's Corner of the Podcast, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and all that kind of fun stuff. Thank you again so much. And uh, this this month is uh, Nikolai uh, Gogol. So enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Translated by DJ Hogarth. Part 1, Chapter 11, Section 1. Read by Anna Simon. Nevertheless, events did not turn out as Chichikov had intended they should. In the first place, he overslept himself. That was check number one. In the second place, on his rising and inquiring whether the britchka had been harnessed and everything got ready, he was informed that neither of those two things had been done. That was check number two. Beside himself with rage, he prepared to give Selifan the wigging of his life, and, meanwhile, waited impatiently to hear what the delinquent had got to say in his defence. It goes without saying that when Selifan made his appearance in the doorway, he had only the usual excuses to offer, the sort of excuses usually offered by servants when a hasty departure has become imperatively necessary. "'Paul Ivanovich,' he said, "'the horses require shoeing.' 
Blockhead! exclaimed Chichikov. Why did you not tell me of that before, you damned fool? Was there not time enough for them to be shot? Yes, I suppose there was, agreed Selifan. Also, one of the wheels is in want of a new tyre, for the roads are so rough that the old tyre is worn through. Also, the body of the britchka is so rickety that probably it will not last more than a couple of stages. Rascal! shouted Chichikov, clenching his fists and approaching Selifan in such a manner that, fearing to receive a blow, the man backed and dodged aside. Do you mean to ruin me, and to break all our bones on the road, you cursed idiot? For these three weeks past you've been doing nothing at all, yet now, at the last moment, you come here stammering and playing the fool. Do you think I keep you just to eat and to drive yourself about? You must have known of this before. Did you or did you not know it? Answer me at once. Yes, I did know it, replied Selifan, hanging his head. Then why didn't you tell me about it? Selifan had no reply immediately ready, so continued to hang his head while quietly saying to himself, See how well I have managed things. I knew what was the matter, yet I did not say. And now, continued Chichikov, go you at once and fetch a blacksmith. Tell him that everything must be put right within two hours at the most. Do you hear? If that should not be done, I... I... I will give you the best flogging that ever you had in your life. Truly, Chichikov was almost beside himself with fury. Turning towards the door, as though for the purpose of going and carrying out his orders, Selifan halted and added, That skewbald, Baron, you might think it well to sell him, seeing that he's nothing but a rascal. A horse like that is more of a hindrance than a help. What? Do you expect me to go now to the marketplace and sell him? Well, Paul Ivanovich, he's good for nothing but show, since by nature he's a most cunning beast. Never in my life have I seen such a horse. Fool! Whenever I may wish to sell him, I shall sell him. Meanwhile, don't you trouble your head about what doesn't concern you, but go and fetch a blacksmith, and see that everything is put right within two hours. Otherwise, I'll take the very hair of your head, and beat you till you haven't a face left. Be off! Hurry! Salafan departed, and Chichikov, his ill-humor vented, threw down upon the floor the poignard which he always took with him as a means of instilling respect into whomsoever it might concern, and spent the next quarter of an hour in disputing with a couple of blacksmiths, men who, as usual, were rascals of the type which, on perceiving that something is wanted in a hurry, at once multiplies its terms for providing the same. Indeed, for all Chichikov's storming and raging, as he dubbed the fellows robbers and extortioners and thieves, he could make no impression upon the pair, since, true to their character, they declined to abate their prices, and, even when they had begun their work, spent upon it not two hours, but five and a half. Meanwhile, he had the satisfaction of experiencing that delightful time with which all travellers are familiar, namely, the time during which one sits in a room where, except for a litter of string, waste paper and so forth, everything else has been packed. But to all things there comes an end, and there arrived also the long-awaited moment when the britchka had received the luggage, the faulty wheel had been fitted with a new tire, the horses had been reshot, and the predatory blacksmiths had departed with their gains. Thank God, thought Chichikov, as the britchka rolled out of the gates of the inn, and the vehicle began to jolt over the cobblestones. Yet a feeling which he could not altogether have defined filled his breast as he gazed upon the houses and the streets and the garden walls which he might never see again. 
Presently, on turning a corner, the britchka was brought to a halt through the fact that along the street there was filing a seemingly endless funeral procession. Leaning forward in his britchka, Chichikov asked Petrushka whose obsequies the procession represented, and was told that they represented those of the public prosecutor. Disagreeably shocked, our hero hastened to raise the hood of the vehicle, to draw the curtains across the windows, and to lean back into a corner. While the britchka remained thus halted, Selifan and Petrushka, their caps doffed, sat watching the progress of the cortege, after they had received strict instructions not to greet any fellow-servant whom they might recognize. Behind the hearse walked the whole body of Chinovniks, bareheaded, and though for a moment or two Chichikov feared that some of their number might discern him in his britchka, he need not have disturbed himself, since their attention was otherwise engaged. In fact, they were not even exchanging the small talk customary among members of such processions, but thinking exclusively of their own affairs, of the advent of the new governor-general, and of the probable manner in which he would take up the reins of administration. Next came a number of carriages, from the windows of which peered the ladies in morning toilets. Yet the movements of their hands and lips made it evident that they were indulging in animated conversation, probably about the governor-general, the balls which he might be expected to give, and their own eternal fripperies and gewgaws. Lastly came a few empty troskis. As soon as the latter had passed, our hero was able to continue on his way. Throwing back the hood of the britchka, he said to himself, Ah, good friend, you have lived your life, and now it is over. In the newspapers they will say of you that you died regretted not only by your subordinates, but also by humanity at large, as well as that, a respected citizen, a kind father, and a husband beyond reproach, you went to your grave amid the tears of your widow and orphans. Yet, should those journals be put to it to name any particular circumstance which justified this eulogy of you, they would be forced to fall back upon the fact that you grew a pair of exceptionally thick eyebrows. With that, Chichikov bid Selifan quicken his pace, and concluded, After all, it is as well that I encountered the procession, for they say that to meet a funeral is lucky. Presently the britchka turned into some less frequented streets. Lines of wooden fencing, of the kind which marked the outskirts of a town, began to file by. The cobblestones came to an end. The macadam of the high road succeeded to them, and once more there began on either side of the turnpike a procession of verse stones, road-menders, and grey villages, inns with samovars and peasant women, and landlords who came running out of yards with sea-fulls of oats, pedestrians in worn shoes which, it might be, had covered eight hundred versts, little towns bright with boots for the sale of flour and barrels, boots, small loaves, and other trifles, heaps of slag, much-repaired bridges, expanses of field to right and to left, stout landowners, a mounted soldier bearing a green, iron-clamped box, inscribed, The Ex-Battery of Artillery, long strips of freshly tilled earth which gleamed green, yellow, and black on the face of the countryside. With it mingled long-drawn singing, glimpses of elm-tops amid mist, the far-off notes of bells, endless clouds of rocks, and the illimitable line of the horizon. Ah, Russia, Russia, from my beautiful home in a strange land, I can still see you. In you, everything is poor and disordered and unhomely. In you, the eye is neither cheered nor dismayed by temerities of nature, which a yet more temerarious art has conquered. In you, one beholds no cities with lofty, many-windowed mansions, lofty as crags, 
no picturesque trees, no ivy-clad ruins, no waterfalls with their everlasting spray and roar, no beetling precipices which confuse the brain with their stony immensity, no vistas of vines and ivy and millions of wild roses and ageless lines of blue hills which look almost unreal against the clear, silvery background of the sky. In you everything is flat and open. Your towns project like points or signals from smooth levels of plain, and nothing whatsoever enchants or deludes the eye. Yet what secret, what invincible force draws me to you? Why does there ceaselessly echo and re-echo in my ears the sad song which hovers throughout the length and the breadth of your borders? What is the burden of that song? Why does it wail and sob and catch at my heart? What say the notes which thus painfully caress and embrace my soul, and flit, uttering their lamentations, around me? What is it you seek of me, O Russia? What is the hidden bond which subsists between us? Why do you regard me as you do? Why does everything within you turn upon me, eyes full of yearning? Even at this moment, as I stand dumbly, fixedly, perplexedly contemplating your vastness, a menacing cloud, charged with gathering rain, seems to overshadow my head. What is it that your boundless expanses presage? Do they not presage that one day there will arise in you ideas as boundless as yourself? Do they not presage that one day you too will know no limits? Do they not presage that one day, when again you shall have room for their exploits, there will spring to life the heroes of old? How the power of your immensity enfolds me, and reverberates through all my being with a wild, strange spell, and flashes in my eyes with an almost supernatural radiance. Yes, a strange, brilliant, unearthly vista indeed do you disclose, O Russia, country of mine. Stop! Stop, you fool! shouted Chichikov to Selifan. And even as he spoke, a troika, bound on government business, came chattering by, and disappeared in a cloud of dust. To Chichikov's curses at Selifan, for not having drawn out of the way with more alacrity, a rural constable with moustaches of the length of an arshin added his quota. What a curious and attractive, yet also what an unreal fascination the term highway connotes! And how interesting for its own sake is a highway! Should the day be a fine one, though chilly, in mellowing autumn, press closer your travelling cloak and draw down your cap over your ears, and snuggle cosily, comfortably into a corner of the britchka before a last shiver shall course through your limbs, and the ensuing warmth shall put to flight the autumnal cold and damp. As the horses gallop on their way, how delightfully will drowsiness come stealing upon you and make your eyelids droop! For a while, through your somnolence, you will continue to hear the hard breathing of the team and the rumbling of the wheels, but at length, sinking back into your corner, you will relapse into the stage of snoring. And when you awake, behold, you will find that five stages have slipped away, and that the moon is shining, and that you have reached a strange town of churches, and old wooden cupolas, and blackened spires, and white half-timbered houses. And, as the moonlight glints hither and thither, almost you will believe that the walls and the streets and the pavements of the place are spread with sheets, sheets shot with coal-black shadows which make the wooden roofs look all the brighter under the slanting beams of the pale luminary. Nowhere is a soul to be seen, for every one is plunged in slumber. Yet no, 
In a solitary window a light is flickering, where some good burger is mending his boots, or a baker drawing a batch of dough. Oh, night and powers of heaven, how perfect is the blackness of your infinite vault! How lofty, how remote its inaccessible depths, where it lies spread in an intangible yet audible silence! Freshly does the lulling breath of night blow in your face, until once more you relapse into snoring oblivion, and your poor neighbor turns angrily in his corner as he begins to be conscious of your weight. Then again you awake, but this time to find yourself confronted with only fields and steps. Everywhere in the ascendant is the desolation of space. But suddenly the ciphers on a versed stone leap to the eye. Morning is rising, and on the chill, gradually paling line of the horizon you can see gleaming a faint gold streak. The wind freshens and grows keener, and you snuggle closer in your cloak. Yet how glorious is that freshness, and how marvellous the sleep in which once again you become unfolded. A jolt, and for the last time you return to consciousness. By now the sun is high in the heavens, and you hear a voice cry, Gently, gently, as a farm wagon issues from a by-road. Below, enclosed within an ample dyke, stretches a sheet of water which glistens like copper in the sunlight. Beyond, on the side of a slope, lie some scattered peasants' huts, a manor-house, and, flanking the latter, a village church with its cross flashing like a star. There also comes wafted to your ear the sound of peasants' laughter, while in your inner man you are becoming conscious of an appetite which is not to be withstood. Oh, long-drawn highway, how excellent you are! How often have I, in weariness and despondency, set forth upon your length, and found in you salvation and rest! How often, as I have followed your leading, have I been visited with wonderful thoughts and poetic dreams and curious, wild impressions! At this moment our friend Chichikov also was experiencing visions of a not wholly prosaic nature. Let us peep into his soul and share them. At first he remained unconscious of anything whatsoever, for he was too much engaged in making sure that he was really clear of the town. But, as soon as he saw that it had completely disappeared, with its mills and factories and other urban appurtenances, and that even the steeples of the white stone churches had sunk below the horizon, he turned his attention to the road, and the town of N vanished from his thoughts as completely as though he had not seen it since childhood. Again, in its turn, the road ceased to interest him, and he began to close his eyes and to loll his head against the cushions. Of this let the author take advantage, in order to speak at length concerning his hero, since hitherto he, the author, has been prevented from so doing by Nozdrev and balls and ladies and local intrigues, by those thousand trifles which seem trifles only when they are introduced into a book, but which, in life, figure as affairs of importance. Let us lay them aside and betake ourselves to business." Whether the character whom I have selected for my hero has pleased my readers is, of course, exceedingly doubtful. At all events, the ladies will have failed to approve him, for the fair sex demands in a hero perfection, and, should there be the least mental or physical stain on him, well, woe betide. Yes, no matter how profoundly the author may probe that hero's soul, no matter how clearly he may portray his figure as in a mirror, he will be given no credit for the achievement. Indeed, Chichikov's very stoutness and plenitude of years may have militated against him, for never is a hero pardoned for the former, and the majority of ladies will, in such a case, turn away and mutter to themselves, Phew, what a beast! Yes, the author is well aware of this. 
yet, though he could not, to save his life, take a person of virtue for his principal character, it may be that this story contains themes never before selected, and that in it there projects the whole boundless wealth of Russian psychology. That it portrays, as well as Chichikov, the peasant who is gifted with the virtues which God has sent him, and the marvellous maiden of Russia who is not her like in all the world for her beautiful feminine spirituality, the roots of which lie buried in noble aspirations and boundless self-denial. In fact, compared with these types, the virtues of other races seem lifeless, as does an inanimate volume when compared with a living word. Yes, each time that there arises in Russia a movement of thought, it becomes clear that the movement sinks deep into the Slavonic nature, where it would but have skimmed the surface of other nations. But why am I talking like this? Whither am I tending? It is indeed shameful that an author who long ago reached man's estate, and was brought up to a cause of severe introspection and sober, solitary self-enlightenment, should give way to such jejune wandering from the point. To everything is proper time and place and turn. As I was saying, it does not lie in me to take a virtuous character for my hero, and I will tell you why. It is because it is high time that a rest were given to the poor but virtuous individual. It is because the phrase, a man of worth, has grown into a byword. It is because the man of worth has become converted into a horse, and there is not a writer but rides him and flogs him in and out of season. It is because the man of worth has been starved until he has not a shred of his virtue left, and all that remains of his body is but the ribs and the hide. It is because the man of worth is forever being smuggled upon the scene. It is because the man of worth has at length forfeited everyone's respect. For these reasons do I reaffirm that it is high time to yoke a rascal to the shafts. Let us yoke that rascal. Our hero's beginnings were both modest and obscure. True, his parents were Dvorian, but he in no way resembled them. At all events, a short, squab female relative who was present at his birth exclaimed as she lifted up the baby, "'He's altogether different from what I'd expected him to be. He ought to have taken after his maternal grandmother.' whereas he has been born, as the proverb has it, like not father nor mother, but like a chance passer-by. Thus from the first, life regarded the little Chichikov with sour distaste, and as through a dim, frost-encrusted window. A tiny room with diminutive casements which were never opened, summer or winter. An invalid father in a dressing-gown lined with lambskin, and with an ailing foot swathered in bandages. A man who was continually drawing deep breaths, and walking up and down the room, and spitting into a sandbox. A period of perpetually sitting on a bench with pen in hand, and ink on lips and fingers. A period of being eternally confronted with a copybook maxim, never tell a lie, but obey your superiors, and cherish virtue in your heart. An everlasting scraping and shuffling of slippers up and down the room. A period of continually hearing a well-known, strident voice exclaim, so you have been playing the fool again. At times with a child, weary of the mortal monotony of his task, had added a superfluous embellishment to his copy, a period of experiencing the ever-familiar but ever-unpleasant sensation which ensued upon those words as the boy's ear was painfully twisted between two long fingers bent backwards at the tips. Such is the miserable picture of that youth of which, in later life, Chichikov preserved but the faintest of memories. But in this world... Everything is liable to swift and sudden change, 
and, one day in early spring, when the rivers had melted, the father set forth with his little son in a telieshka, or four-wheeled open carriage, drawn by a sorrel steed of the kind known to horsey folk as a soaka, and having as coachman the diminutive hunchback who, father of the only serf family belonging to the elder Chichikov, served as general factotum in the Chichikov establishment. For a day and a half the soaka conveyed them on their way, during which time they spent the night at a roadside inn, crossed the river, dined off cold pie and roast mutton, and eventually arrived at the county town. To the lad the streets presented a spectacle of unwanted brilliancy, and he gaped with amazement. Turning into a side alley, wherein the mire necessitated both the most strenuous exertions on the soaka's part, and the most vigorous castigation on the part of the driver and the baron, the conveyance eventually reached the gates of a courtyard, which, combined with a small fruit garden containing various bushes, a couple of apple trees in blossom, and a mean, dirty little shed, constituted the premises attached to an antiquated-looking villa. Here there lived a relative of the Chichikovs, a wizened old lady who went to market in person and dried her stockings at the samovar. On seeing the boy, she patted his cheek and expressed satisfaction at his physique whereupon the fact became disclosed that here he was to abide for a while, for the purpose of attending a local school. After a night's rest, his father prepared to betake himself homeward again. But no tears marked the parting between him and his son. He merely gave the lad a copper or two, and, a far more important thing, the following injunctions. "'See here, my boy. Do your lessons well. Do not idle or play the fool, and above all things see that you please your teachers.' So long as you observe these rules, you will make progress, and surpass your fellows, even if God shall have denied you brains, and you should fail in your studies. Also do not consult overmuch with your comrades, for they will do you no good. But should you do so, then make friends with the richer of them, since one day they may be useful to you. Also never entertain or treat anyone, but see that everyone entertains and treats you. Lastly, and above all else, Keep and save your every kopeck. To save money is the most important thing in life. Always a friend or a comrade may fail you, and be the first to desert you in a time of adversity. But never will a kopeck fail you, whatever may be your plight. Nothing in the world cannot be done, cannot be attained, without the aid of money. These injunctions given, the father embraced his son, and set forth on his return. And though the son never again beheld his parent, the latter's words and precepts sank deep into the little Chichikov's soul. The next day, young Pavlushka made his first attendance at school. But no special aptitude in any branch of learning did he display. Rather, his distinguishing characteristics were diligence and neatness. On the other hand, he developed great intelligence as regards the practical aspect of life. In a trice he divined and comprehended how things ought to be worked, and, from that time forth, bore himself towards his schoolfellows in such a way that, though they frequently gave him presents, he not only never returned the compliment, but even, on occasions, pocketed the gifts for the mere purpose of selling them again. Also, boy though he was, he acquired the art of self-denial. Of the trifle which his father had given him, on parting, he spent not a kopeck, but the same year actually added to his little store by fashioning a bullfinch of wax, painting it, and selling the same at a handsome profit. Next, as time went on, he engaged in other speculations. 
in particular the time-scheme of buying up eatables, taking his seat in class beside boys who had plenty of pocket-money, and, as soon as such opulent individuals showed signs of failing attention, and, therefore, of growing appetite, tendering them from beneath the desk a roll of pudding or a piece of gingerbread, and charging according to degree of appetite and size of portion. He also spent a couple of months in training a mouse, which he kept confined in a little wooden cage in his bedroom. At length, when the training had reached the point that, at the several words of command, the mouse would stand upon its hind legs, lie down, and get up again, he sold the creature for a respectable sum. Thus, in time, his gains attained the amount of five roubles. Whereupon he made himself a purse, and then started to fill a second receptacle of the kind. Still more studied was his attitude towards the authorities. No one could sit more quietly in his place on the bench than he. In the same connection it may be remarked that his teacher was a man who, above all things, loved peace and good behaviour, and simply could not abide clever witty boys, since he suspected them of laughing at him. Consequently, any lad who had once attracted the master's attention with a manifestation of intelligence needed but to shuffle in his place, or unintentionally to twitch an eyebrow, for the said master at once to burst into a rage, to turn the supposed offender out of the room, and to visit him with unmerciful punishment. "'Ah, my fine fellow,' he would say, "'I'll cure you of your impudence and want of respect. I know you through and through far better than you know yourself.' and will take good care that you have to go down upon your knees and curb your appetite. Whereupon the wretched lad would, for no cause of which he was aware, be forced to wear out his breeches on the floor and go hungry for days. Talents and gifts, the schoolmaster would declare, are so much rubbish. I respect only good behavior and shall award full marks to those who conduct themselves properly, even if they fail to learn a single letter of their alphabet, whereas to those in whom I may perceive a tendency to jocularity, I shall award nothing, even though they should outdo Solon himself. For the same reason, he had no great love of the author Krylov, in that the letter says in one of his fables, In my opinion, the more one sings, the better one works. And often the pedagogue would relate how, in a former school of his, the silence had been such that a fly could be heard buzzing on the wing, and for the space of a whole year not a single pupil sneezed or coughed in class, and so complete was the absence of all sound that no one could have told that there was a soul in the place. Of this mentor, young Chichikov speedily appraised the mentality, wherefore he fashioned his behaviour to correspond with it. Not an eyelid, not an eyebrow, would he stir during school hours, howsoever many pinches he might receive from behind and only when the bell rang would he run to anticipate his fellows in handing the master the three-cornered cap which that dignitary customarily sported, and then to be the first to leave the classroom, and contrive to meet the master not less than two or three times as the latter walked homeward, in order that, on each occasion, he might doff his cap. And the scheme proved entirely successful. Throughout the period of his attendance at school he was held in high favour, and, on leaving the establishment, received full marks for every subject, as well as a diploma and a book inscribed, in gilt letters, for exemplary diligence and the perfection of good conduct. By this time he had grown into a fairly good-looking youth of the age when the chin first calls for a razor, and at about the same period his father died, leaving behind him, as his estate, four waistcoats completely worn out, two ancient frock-coats, and a small sum of money. 
Apparently, he had been skilled only in recommending the saving of kopecks, not in actually practicing the art. Upon that, Chichikov sold the old house and its little parcel of land for a thousand roubles, and removed, with his one serf and the serf's family, to the capital, where he set about organizing a new establishment and entering the civil service. Simultaneously with his doing so, his old schoolmaster lost, through stupidity or otherwise, the establishment over which he had hitherto presided, and in which he had set so much store by silence and good behavior. Grief drove him to drink, and when nothing was left, even for that purpose, he retired, ill, helpless, and starving, into a broken-down, cheerless hovel. But certain of his former pupils, the same clever, witty lads whom he had once been wont to accuse of impertinence and evil conduct generally, heard of his pitiable plight, and collected for him what money they could, even to the point of selling their own necessaries. Only Chichikov, when appealed to, pleaded inability, and compromised with the contribution of a single piatak. Footnote, silver five kopeck piece, and footnote, which his old schoolfellows straightway returned him, full in the face, and accompanied with a shout of, Oh, you skinflint! As for the poor schoolmaster, when he heard what his former pupils had done, he buried his face in his hands, and the tears gushed from his failing eyes as from those of a helpless infant. God has brought you but to weep over my deathbed, he murmured feebly and added with a profound sigh on hearing of Chichikov's conduct, "'Ah, Pavlushka, how a human being may become changed! Once you were a good lad and gave me no trouble, but now you're become proud indeed!' Yet let it not be inferred from this that our hero's character had grown so blasé and hard, or his conscience so blunted, as to preclude his experiencing a particle of sympathy or compassion. As a matter of fact, he was capable both of the one and the other, and would have been glad to assist his old teacher, had no great sum being required, or had he not been called upon to touch the fund which had decided should remain intact. In other words, the father's injunction, guard and save every kopeck, had become a hard and fast rule of the sons. Yet the youth had no particular attachment to money for money's sake. He was not possessed with a true instinct for hoarding and niggardliness. Rather, before his eyes there floated ever a vision of life and its amenities and advantages, a vision of carriages and an elegantly furnished house and recherche dinners, and it was in the hope that some day he might attain these things that he saved every kopeck and, meanwhile, stinted both himself and others. Whenever a rich man passed him by in a splendid droshki, drawn by swift and handsomely caparisoned horses, he would hold as though deep in thought, and say to himself, like a man awakening from a long sleep, "'That gentleman must have been a financier. He has so little hair on his brow.' In short, everything connected with wealth and plenty produced upon him an ineffaceable impression. Even when he left school, he took no holiday, so strong in him was the desire to get to work and enter the civil service. Yet, for all the encomiums contained in his diploma, he had much ado to procure a nomination to a government department, and only after a long time was a minor post found for him, at a salary of thirty or forty roubles a year. Nevertheless, wretched though this appointment was, he determined, by strict attention to business, to overcome all obstacles and to win success. And, indeed, the self-denial, the patience, and the economy which he displayed were remarkable. From early morn until late at night he would, with indefatigable zeal of body and mind, remain immersed in a sordid task of copying official documents. 
never going home, snatching what sleep he could on tables in the building, and dining with a watchman on duty. Yet, all the while, he contrived to remain clean and neat, to preserve a cheerful expression of countenance, and even to cultivate a certain elegance of movement. In passing, it may be remarked that his fellow chinovniks were a peculiarly plain, unsightly lot, some of them having faces like badly baked bread, swollen cheeks, receding chins, and cracked and blistered upper lips. Indeed, not a man of them was handsome. Also, their tone of voice always contained a note of sullenness, as though they had a mind to knock someone on the head, and by their frequent sacrifices to Bacchus, they showed that even yet there remains in the Slavonic nature a certain element of paganism. Nay, the director's room itself they would invade while still licking their lips, and since their breath was not over-aromatic, the atmosphere of the room grew not over-pleasant. Naturally, among such an official staff, a man like Chichikov could not fail to attract attention and remark, since in everything, in cheerfulness of demeanour, in suavity of voice, and in complete neglect of the use of strong potions, he was the absolute antithesis of his companions. Yet his path was not an easy one to tread, for over him he had the misfortune to have placed in authority a chief clerk who was a graven image of elderly insensibility and inertia. Always the same, always unapproachable, this functionary could never in his life have smiled or asked civilly after an acquaintance's health. Nor had anyone ever seen him a whit different in the street or at his own home from what he was in the office, or showing the least interest in anything whatever, or getting drunk and relapsing into jollity in his cups, or indulging in that species of wild gaiety which, when intoxicated, even a burglar affects. No, not a particle of this was there in him nor, for that matter, was there in him a particle of anything at all, whether good or bad, which complete negativeness of character produced rather a strange effect. In the same way, his wizened, marble-like features reminded one of nothing in particular, so primly proportioned were they. Only the numerous pockmarks and dimples with which they were pitted placed him among the number of those over whose faces, to quote the popular saying, the devil has walked by night to grind peas. In short, it would seem that no human agency could have approached such a man and gained his goodwill. Yet Chichikov made the effort. As a first step, he took to consulting the other's convenience in all manner of insignificant trifles, to cleaning his pens carefully, and, when they had been prepared exactly to the chief clerk's liking, laying them ready at his elbow, to dusting and sweeping from his table all superfluous sand and tobacco ash, to procuring a new mat for his inkstand, to looking for his hat, the meanest-looking hat that ever the world beheld, and having it ready for him at the exact moment when business came to an end, to brushing his back if it happened to become smeared with whitewash from a wall. Yet all this passed as unnoticed as though it had never been done. Finally, Chichikov sniffed into his superior's family and domestic life, and learned that he possessed a grown-up daughter on whose face also there had taken place a nocturnal, diabolical grinding of peas. Here was a quarter whence a fresh attack might be delivered. After ascertaining what church the daughter attended on Sundays, our hero took to contriving to meet her in a neat suit and a well-starched dickey, and soon the scheme began to work. The surly chief clerk wavered for a while, then ended by inviting Chichikov to tea nor could any man in the office have told you how it came about that before long Chichikov had removed to the chief clerk's house and become a person necessary, indeed indispensable to the household. 
seeing that he bought the flour and the sugar, treated the daughter as his betrothed, called the chief clerk Papenka, and occasionally kissed Papenka's hand. In fact, every one at the office supposed that, at the end of February, that is, before the beginning of Lent, there would take place a wedding. Nay, the surly father even began to agitate with the authorities on Chichikov's behalf, and so enabled our hero, on a vacancy occurring, to attain the stool of a chief clerk. Apparently, this marked the consummation of Chichikov's relations with his host, for he hastened stealthily to pack his trunk, and, the next day, figured in a fresh lodging. Also, he ceased to call the chief clerk Popenka, or to kiss his hand, and the matter of the wedding came to as abrupt a termination as though it had never been mooted. Yet also, he never failed to press his late host's hand, whenever he met him, and to invite him to tea, while, on the other hand, for all his immobility and dry indifference, the chief clerk never failed to shake his head with a muttered, "'Ah, my fine fellow, you've grown too proud. You've grown too proud.' The foregoing constituted the most difficult step that our hero had to negotiate. Thereafter, things came with greater ease and swifter success. Everywhere he attracted notice, for he developed within himself everything necessary for this world, namely charm of manner and bearing, and great diligence in business matters. Armed with these resources, he next obtained promotion to what is known as a fat post, and used it to the best advantage and even though at that period strict inquiry had begun to be made into the whole subject of bribes, such inquiry failed to alarm him. Nay, he actually turned it to account, and thereby manifested the Russian resourcefulness which never fails to attain its zenith. The foregoing constituted the most difficult step that our hero had to negotiate. Thereafter, things came with greater ease and swifter success. Everywhere he attracted notice, for he developed within himself everything necessary for his world namely, charm of manner and bearing, and great diligence in business matters. Armed with these resources, he next obtained promotion to what is known as a fat post, and used it to the best advantage. And even though, at that period, strict inquiry had begun to be made into the whole subject of bribes, such inquiry failed to alarm him. Nay, he actually turned it to account, and thereby manifested the Russian resourcefulness, which never fails to attain its zenith, where extortion is concerned. His method of working was the following. As soon as a petitioner or a suitor put his hand into his pocket, to extract thence the necessary letters of recommendation for signature, Chichikov would smilingly exclaim, as he detained his interlocutor's hand, No, no, surely you do not think that I... But no, no, it is our duty, it is our obligation, and we do not require rewards for doing our work properly. So far as your matter is concerned, you may rest easy. Everything shall be carried through tomorrow. But may I have your address? There is no need to trouble yourself, seeing that the documents can easily be brought to you at your residence. Upon which the delighted suitor would return home in raptures, thinking, Here, at long last, is the sort of man so badly needed. A man of that kind is a jewel beyond price. Yet for a day, for two days, nay, even for three, the suitor would wait in vain, so far as any messengers with documents were concerned. Then he would repair to the office, to find that his business had not so much as been entered upon. Lastly, he would confront the jewel beyond price. "'Oh, pardon me, pardon me!' Chichikov would exclaim, in the politest of tones, as he seized and grasped the visitor's hands. "'The truth is that we have such a quantity of business on hand.' But the matter shall be put through tomorrow, and in the meanwhile I am most sorry about it. 
and with this would go the most fascinating of gestures. Yet neither on the morrow, nor on the day following, nor on the third, would documents arrive at the suitor's abode. Upon that he would take thought as to whether something more ought not to have been done. And, sure enough, on his making inquiry, he would be informed that something will have to be given to the copyists. Well, there can be no harm in that, he would reply. As a matter of fact, I have ready a chadvertak or two. Footnote. A silver quarter rouble. End footnote. Oh, no, no, the answer would come. Not a chadvertak per copyist, but a rouble is the fee. What? A rouble per copyist? Certainly. What is there to grumble at in that? Of the money, the copyists will receive a chadvartak apiece, and the rest will go to the government. Upon that, the disillusioned suitor would fly out upon the new order of things brought about by the inquiry into illicit fees, and curse both the chinovniks and their uppish, insolent behavior. Once upon a time, would the suitor lament, one did know what to do. Once one had tipped the director a banknote, one's affair was, so to speak, in the hat. But now one has to pay a rouble per copyist after waiting a week, because otherwise it was impossible to guess how the wind might set. The devil fly away with all disinterested and trustworthy chinovniks. And certainly the aggrieved suitor had reason to grumble, seeing that, now that bribe-takers had ceased to exist, and directors had uniformly become men of honor and integrity, secretaries and clerks ought not with impunity to have continued their thievish ways. In time there opened out to Chichikov a still wider field, for a commission was appointed to supervise the erection of a government building, and, on his being nominated to that body, he proved himself one of its most active members. The commission got to work without delay, but for a space of six years had some trouble with the building in question. Either the climate hindered operations, or the materials used were of the kind which prevents official edifices from ever rising higher than the basement. But meanwhile, other quarters of the town saw arise, for each member of the commission, a handsome house of the non-official style of architecture. Clearly, the foundation afforded by the soil of those parts was better than that where the government building was still engaged in hanging fire. Likewise, the members of the commission began to look exceedingly prosperous, and to blossom out into family life. And, for the first time in his existence, even Chichikov also departed from the iron laws of his self-imposed restraint and inexorable self-denial, and so far mitigated his heretofore asceticism as to show himself a man not averse to those amenities which, during his youth, he had been capable of renouncing. That is to say, certain superfluities began to make their appearance in his establishment. He engaged a good cook, took to wearing linen shirts, bought for himself cloth of a pattern worn by no one else in the province, figured in checks shot with the brightest of reds and browns, fitted himself out with two splendid horses, which he drove with a single pair of reins added to a ring attachment for the trace horse, developed a habit of washing with a sponge dipped in eau de cologne, and invested in soaps of the most expensive quality in order to communicate to his skin a more elegant polish. End of Part 1 Chapter 11, Section 1《Dead Souls》by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, translated by D.J. Hogarth. Part 1, Chapter 11, Section 2, read by Anna Simon. But suddenly there appeared upon the scene a new director, 
a military man, and a martinet as regarded his hostility to bribe-takers and anything which might be called irregular. On the very day after his arrival, he struck fear into every breast by calling for accounts, discovering hosts of deficits and missing sums, and directing his attention to the aforesaid fine houses of civilian architecture. Upon that there ensued a complete reshuffling. Chinovniks were retired wholesale, and the houses were sequestrated to the government, or else converted into various pious institutions and schools for soldiers' children. Thus the whole fabric, and especially Chichikov, came crashing to the ground. Particularly did our hero's agreeable face displease the new director. Why that was so, it is impossible to say, but frequently, in cases of the kind, no reason exists. However, the director conceived a mortal dislike to him, and also extended that enmity to the whole of Chichikov's colleagues. But inasmuch as the said director was a military man, he was not fully acquainted with the myriad subtleties of the civilian mind. Wherefore it was not long before, by dint of maintaining a discreet exterior, added to a faculty for humouring all and sundry, a fresh gang of chinovniks succeeded in restoring him to mildness, and the general found himself in the hands of greater thieves than before, but thieves whom he did not even suspect, seeing that he believed himself to have selected men fit and proper, and even ventured to boast of possessing a keen eye for talent. In a trice the chinovniks concerned appraised his spirit and character with the result that the entire sphere over which he ruled became an agency for the detection of irregularities. Everywhere, and in every case, were those irregularities pursued as a fisherman pursues a fat sturgeon with a gaff, and to such an extent did the sport prove successful that almost in no time each participator in the hunt was seen to be in possession of several thousand roubles of capital. Upon that, a large number of the former band of chinovniks also became converted to paths of rectitude, and were allowed to re-enter the service. But not by hook or by crook could Chichikov worm his way back, even though, incited thereto by sundry items of paper currency, the general's first secretary and principal bear-leader did all he could on our hero's behalf. It seemed that the general was the kind of man who, though easily led by the news, provided it was done without his knowledge, no sooner got an idea into his head than it stuck there like a nail, and could not possibly be extracted and all that the wily secretary succeeded in procuring was a tearing up of a certain dirty fragment of paper, even that being effected only by an appeal to the general's compassion, on the score of the unhappy fate which, otherwise, would befall Chichikov's wife and children, who, luckily, had no existence in fact. "'Well,' said Chichikov to himself, "'I have done my best, and now everything has failed. Lamenting my misfortune won't help me, but only action.' And with that, he decided to begin his career anew, and once more to arm himself with the weapons of patience and self-denial. The better to effect this, he had, of course, to remove to another town. Yet somehow, for a while, things miscarried. More than once he found himself forced to exchange one post for another, and at the briefest of notice, and all of them were posts of the meanest, the most wretched order. Yet, being a man of the utmost nicety of feeling, the fact that he found himself rubbing shoulders with anything but nice companions did not prevent him from preserving intact his innate love of what was decent and seemly, or from cherishing the instinct which led him to hanker after office fittings of lacquered wood, with neatness and orderliness everywhere. Nor did he at any time permit a foul word to creep into his speech, and would feel hurt even if in the speech of others there occurred a scornful reverence to anything which pertained to rank and dignity. Also, the reader will be pleased to know that our hero changed his linen every other day, and in summer, when the weather was very hot, every day, 
seeing that the very faintest suspicion of an unpleasant odour offended his fastidiousness. For the same reason it was his custom, before being valeted by Petruska, always to plug his nostrils with a couple of cloves. In short, there were many occasions when his nerves suffered wreckings as cruel as a young girl's, and so helped to increase his disgust at having once more to associate with men who set no store by the decencies of life. Yet, though he braced himself to the task, this period of adversity told upon his health, and he even grew a trifle shabby. More than once, on happening to catch sight of himself in the mirror, he could not forbear exclaiming, "'Holy Mother of God! But what a nasty-looking brood I have become!' and for a long while afterwards could not with anything like sang-froid contemplate his reflection. Yet throughout he bore up stoutly and patiently, and ended by being transferred to the customs department. It may be said that the department had long constituted the secret goal of his ambition, for he had noted the foreign elegancies with which its officials always contrived to provide themselves, and had always observed that invariably they were able to send presents of China and Cambridge to their sisters and aunts well, to the lady friends generally. Yes, more than once he had said to himself with a sigh, That is the department to which I ought to belong, for, given a town near the frontier and a sensible set of colleagues, I might be able to fit myself out with excellent linen shirts. Also, it may be said that most frequently of all had his thoughts turned towards a certain quality of French soap, which imparted a peculiar whiteness to the skin and a peerless freshness to the cheeks. Its name is known to God alone, but at least it was to be procured only in the immediate neighbourhood of the frontier. So, as I say, Chichikov had long felt a leaning towards the customs, but for a time had been restrained from applying for the same by the various current advantages of the building commission, since rightly it had judged the latter to constitute a bird in the hand, and the former to constitute only a bird in the bush. But now he decided that, come what might, into the customs he must make his way and that way he made, and then applied himself to his new duties with a zeal born of the fact that he realized that fortune had especially marked him out for a customs officer. Indeed, such activity, perspicuity, and ubiquity as his had never been seen or thought of. Within four weeks at the most he had so thoroughly got his hand in that he was conversant with customs procedure in every detail. Not only could he weigh and measure, but also he could divine from an invoice how many arshins of cloth or other material a given piece contained, and then, taking a roll of the letter in his hand, could specify at once the number of pounds at which it would tip the scale. As for searchings, well, even his colleagues had to admit that he possessed the nose of a veritable bloodhound, and that it was impossible not to marvel at the patience wherewith he would try every button of the suspected person yet preserved throughout a deadly politeness and an icy sang-froid which surpassed belief. And while the search were raging and foaming at the mouth, and feeling that they would give worlds to alter his smiling exterior with a good, resounding slap, he would move not a muscle of his face, nor abate by a jot the urbanity of his demeanour, as he murmured, "'Do you mind so far incommoding yourself as to stand up?' or, "'Pray step into the next room, madam, where the wife of one of our staff will attend you.' or, pray allow me to slip this penknife of mine into the lining of your coat, after which he would extract thence shawls and towels with as much nonchalance as he would have done from his own travelling trunk. Even his superiors acknowledged him to be a devil at the job, rather than a human being, so perfect was his instinct for looking into cartwheels, carriage poles, horses' ears, and places whither an author ought not to penetrate even in thought, places whither only a customs official is permitted to go.
The result was that the wretched traveller who had just crossed the frontier would, within a few minutes, become wholly at sea, and, wiping away the perspiration, and breaking out into body flushes, would be reduced to crossing himself and muttering, "'Well, well, well!' In fact, such a traveller would feel in the position of a schoolboy who, having been summoned to the presence of the headmaster for the ostensible purpose of being given an order, has found that he receives, instead, a sound flogging. In short, for some time Chichikov made it impossible for smugglers to earn a living. In particular, he reduced Polish Jewry almost to despair, so invincible, so almost unnatural was the rectitude, the incorruptibility, which led him to refrain from converting himself into a small capitalist with the aid of confiscated goods and articles, which, to save excessive clerical labour, had failed to be handed over to the government. Also, without saying, it goes that such phenomenally zealous and disinterested service attracted general astonishment, and, eventually, the notice of the authorities, whereupon he received promotion, and followed that up by moving a scheme for the infallible detection of contrabandists, provided that he could be furnished with the necessary authority for carrying out the same. At once such authority was accorded him, as also unlimited power to conduct every species of search and investigation and that was all he wanted. It happened that previously there had been formed a well-found association for smuggling on regular, carefully prepared lines, and that this daring scheme seemed to promise profit to the extent of some millions of money. Yet, though he had long had knowledge of it, Chichikov had said to the association's emissaries when sent to buy him over, "'The time is not yet.' But now that he had got all the reins into his hands, he sent word of the fact to the gang, and with it the remark, the time is now. Nor was he wrong in his calculations, for, within the space of a year, he had acquired what he could not have made during twenty years of non-fraudulent service. With similar sagacity he had, during his early days in the department, declined altogether to enter into relations with the association, for the reason that he had then been a mere cipher, and would have come in for nothing large in the way of takings. But now? Well, now it was another matter altogether, and he could dictate what terms he liked. Moreover, that the affair might progress the more smoothly, he suborned a fellow chinovnik of the type which, in spite of grey hairs, stands powerless against temptation, and, the contract concluded, the association duly proceeded to business. Certainly business began brilliantly, but probably most of my readers are familiar with the oft-repeated story of the passage of Spanish sheep across the frontier in double fleeces which carried between their outer layers and their inner enough lays of Brabant to sell to the tune of millions of roubles. Wherefore I will not recount the story again, beyond saying that those journeys took place just when Chichikov had become head of the customs, and that, had he not a hand in the enterprise, not all the Jews in the world could have brought it to success. By the time that three or four of these ovine invasions had taken place, Chichikov and his accomplice had come to be the possessors of four hundred thousand roubles apiece while some even aver that the former's gains totaled half a million, owing to the greater industry which he had displayed in the matter. Nor can anyone but God say to what a figure the fortunes of the pair might not eventually have attained, had not an awkward contretemps cut right across their arrangements. That is to say, for some reason or another, the devil so far deprived these chinovniks conspirators of sense as to make them come to words with one another, and then to engage in a quarrel. Beginning with a heated argument, this quarrel reached the point of Chichikov, who was possibly a trifle tipsy, calling his colleague a priest's son, and though that description of the person so addressed was perfectly accurate, he chose to take offence, 
and to answer Chichikov with the words, loudly and incisively uttered, "'It is you who have a priest for your father,' and to add to that, the more to incense his companion, "'Yes, mark you, that is how it is.' Yet, though he had thus turned the tables upon Chichikov with the two quoque, and then capped that exploit with the words last quoted, the offended Chinovnik could not remain satisfied, but went on to send in an anonymous document to the authorities. On the other hand, some aver that it was over a woman that the pair fell out, over a woman who, to quote the phrase then current among the staff of the customs department, was as fresh and as strong as the pulp of a turnip, and that night-birds were hired to assault our hero in a dark alley, and that the scheme miscarried, and that in any case both Chichikov and his friend had been deceived, seeing that the person to whom the lady had really accorded her favours was a certain staff-captain named Shamsharev. However, only God knows the truth of the matter. Let the inquisitive reader ferret it out for himself. The fact remains that a complete exposure of the dealings with the contrabandists followed, and that the two chinovniks were put to the question, deprived of their property, and made to formulate in writing all that they had done. Against this thunderbolt of fortune the state councillor could make no headway, and in some retired spot or another sank into oblivion. But Chichikov put a brave face upon the matter, for, in spite of the authorities' best efforts to smell out his gains, he had contrived to conceal a portion of them, and also resorted to every subtle trick of intellect which could possibly be employed by an experienced man of the world who has a wide knowledge of his fellows. Nothing which could be affected by pleasantness of demeanour, by moving oratory, by clouds of flattery, and by the occasional insertion of a coin into a palm did he leave undone, with the result that he was retired with less ignominy than was his companion, and escaped actual trial on a criminal charge. Yet he was stripped of all his capital, stripped of his imported effects, stripped of everything. That is to say, all that remained to him consisted of ten thousand roubles which he had stored against the rainy day two dozen linen shirts, a small britchka of the type used by bachelors, and two serving-men named Selifan and Petrushka. Yes, and that impulse of kindness moved the chinovniks of the customs also to set aside for him a few cakes of the soap which had found so excellent for the freshness of the cheeks. Thus, once more, our hero found himself stranded, and while an accumulation of misfortunes had descended upon his head, though, true, he turned them, suffering in the service in the cause of truth. Certainly, one would have thought that, after these buffetings and trials and changes of fortune, after this taste of the sorrows of life, he and his precious ten thousand roubles would have withdrawn to some peaceful corner in a provincial town, where, clad in a stuff dressing-gown, he could have sat and listened to the peasants quarrelling on festival days, or, for the sake of a breath of fresh air, have gone in person to the poulterers to finger chickens for soup, and so have spent a quiet but not wholly useless existence but nothing of the kind took place, and therein we must do justice to the strength of his character. In other words, although he had undergone what, to the majority of men, would have meant ruin and discouragement and a shattering of ideals, he still preserved his energy. True, downcast and angry, and full of resentment against the world in general, he felt furious with the injustice of fate, and dissatisfied with the dealings of men. Yet he could not forbear courting additional experiences. In short, the patience which he displayed was such as to make the wooden persistency of the German, a persistency merely due to the slow, lethargic circulation of the Teuton's blood, seem nothing at all, seeing that by nature Chichikov's blood flowed strongly, and that he had to employ much force of will to curb within himself those elements which longed to burst forth and revel in freedom. 
He thought things over, and, as he did so, a certain spice of reason appeared in his reflections. "'How have I come to be what I am?' he said to himself. "'Why has misfortune overtaken me in this way? "'Never have I wronged a poor person, or robbed a widow, or turned anyone out of doors. "'I have always been careful only to take advantage of those who possess more than their share. "'Moreover, I have never gleaned anywhere but where everyone else was gleaning.' and had i not done so others would have gleaned in my place why then should those others be prospering and i be sunk as low as a worm what am i what am i good for how can i in future hope to look any honest father of a family in the face how shall i escape being tortured with the thought that i am cumbering the ground what in the years to come will my children say save that our father was a brute for he left us nothing to live upon here I may remark that we have seen how much thought Chichikov devoted to his future descendants. Indeed, had not there been constantly recurring to his mind the insistent question, what will my children say, he might not have plunged into the affairs so deeply. Nevertheless, like a wary cat which glances hither and thither to see whether its mistress be not coming before it can make off with whatsoever first falls to its paw, butter, fat, lard, a duck or anything else, so our future founder of a family continued though weeping and bewailing his lot, to let not a single detail escape his eye. That is to say, he retained his wits ever in a state of activity, and kept his brain constantly working. All that he required was a plan. Once more he pulled himself together, once more he embarked upon a life of toil, once more he stinted himself in everything, once more he left clean and decent surroundings for a dirty, mean existence. In other words, until something better should turn up, he embraced the calling of an ordinary attorney, a calling which, not then possessed of a civic status, was jostled on every side, enjoyed little respect at the hands of the minor legal fry, or indeed at its own, and perforce met with universal slights and rudeness. But sheer necessity compelled Chichikov to face these things. Among commissions entrusted to him was that of placing in the hands of the public trustee several hundred peasants who belonged to a ruined estate. The estate had reached its parlous condition through cattle disease, through rascally bailiffs, through failures of the harvest, through such epidemic diseases that had killed off the best workmen, and last but not least through the senseless conduct of the owner himself, who had furnished a house in Moscow in the latest style, and then squandered its every kopeck so that nothing was left for his further maintenance, and it became necessary to mortgage the remains, including the peasants, of the estate. In those days, mortgage to the treasury was an innovation looked upon with reserve, and, as attorney in the matter, Chichikov had first of all to entertain every official concerned. We know that, unless that be previously done, unless a whole bottle of Madeira first be emptied down each clerical throat, not the smallest legal affair can be carried through and to explain, for the barring of future attachments, that half of the peasants were dead. "'And are they entered on the revision lists?' asked the secretary. "'Yes,' replied Chichikov. "'Then what are you boggling at?' continued the secretary. "'Should one soul die, another will be born, and in time grow up to take the first one's place.' Upon that there dawned on our hero one of the most inspired ideas which ever entered the human brain. "'What a simpleton I am!' he thought to himself. "'Here am I, looking about for my mittens, "'when all the time I have got them tucked into my belt. "'Why, were I myself to buy up a few souls which are dead, "'to buy them before a new revision list shall have been made, 
the Council of Public Trust might pay me two hundred roubles apiece for them, and I might find myself with, say, a capital of two hundred thousand roubles. The present moment is particularly propitious, since in various parts of the country there has been an epidemic, and, glory be to God, a large number of souls have died of it. Nowadays landowners have taken to card-playing and junketing and wasting their money, or to joining the civil service in St. Petersburg. Consequently, their estates are going to wreck and ruin, and being managed in any sort of fashion, and succeeding in paying their dues with greater difficulty each year. That being so, not a man of the lot but would gladly surrender to me his dead souls rather than continue paying the poll tax. And in this fashion I might make, well, not a few kopecks. Of course there are difficulties, and to avoid creating a scandal I should need to employ plenty of finesse. But man was given his brain to use, not to neglect. One good point about the scheme is that it will seem so improbable that in case of an accident no one in the world will believe in it. True, it is illegal to buy or mortgage peasants without land, but I can easily pretend to be buying them only for transferment elsewhere. Land is to be acquired in the provinces of Taurida and Kherson almost for nothing, provided that one undertakes subsequently to colonize it. So to Kherson I will transfer them, and long may they live there and the removal of my dead souls shall be carried out in the strictest legal form. And if the authorities should want confirmation by testimony, I shall produce a letter signed by my own superintendent of the Khersonian rural police, that is to say, by myself. Lastly, the supposed village in Kherson shall be called Chichigova, better still, Pavloskova, according to my Christian name. In this fashion there germinated in our hero's brain that strange scheme for which the reader may or may not be grateful, but for which the author certainly is so, seeing that, had it never occurred to Chichikov, this story would never have seen the light. After crossing himself, according to the Russian custom, Chichikov set about carrying out his enterprise. On pretense of selecting a place wherein to settle, he started forth to inspect various corners of the Russian Empire but more especially those which had suffered from such unfortunate accidents as failures of the harvest, a high rate of mortality, or whatsoever else might enable him to purchase souls at the lowest possible rate. But he did not tackle his landowners haphazard. He rather selected such of them as seemed more particularly suited to his taste, or with whom he might with the least possible trouble conclude identical agreements, though, in the first instance, he always tried by getting on terms of acquaintanceship, better still, of friendship, with them, to acquire the souls for nothing, and so to avoid purchase at all. In passing, my readers must not blame me if the characters whom they have encountered in these pages have not been altogether to their liking. The fault is Chichikov's rather than mine, for he is the master, and where he leads we must follow. Also, should my readers gird at me for a certain dimness and want of clarity in my principal characters and actors, that will be tantamount to saying that never do the broad tendency and the general scope of a work become immediately apparent. Similarly does the entry to every town, the entry even to the capital itself, convey to the traveller such an impression of vagueness that at first everything looks grey and monotonous, and the lines of smoky factories and workshops seem never to be coming to an end. But in time there will begin also to stand out the outlines of six-storied mansions, and of shops and balconies, and wide perspectives of streets, and a medley of steeples, columns, statues and turrets, the whole framed in rattle and roar, and the infinite wonders which the hand and the brain of man have conceived. Of the manner in which Chichikov's first purchases were made, the reader is aware. 
Subsequently, he will see also how the affair progressed, and with what success or failure our hero met, and how Chichikov was called upon to decide and to overcome even more difficult problems than the foregoing, and by what colossal forces the levers of his far-flung tail are moved, and how eventually the horizon will become extended until everything assumes a grandiose and a lyrical tendency. Yes, many a verst of road remains to be travelled by a party made up of an elderly gentleman, a britchka of the kind affected by bachelors, a valet named Petrushka, a coachman named Selifan, and three horses, which, from the assessor to the skewbold, are known to us individually by name. Again, although I have given a full description of our hero's exterior, such as it is, I may yet be asked for an inclusive definition also of his moral personality. That he is no hero compounded of virtues and perfections must be already clear. Then what is he? A villain? Why should we call him a villain? Why should we be so hard upon a fellow man? In these days our villains have ceased to exist. Rather it would be fairer to call him an acquirer. The love of acquisition, the love of gain, is a fault common to many, and gives rise to many and many a transaction of the kind generally known as not strictly honourable. True, such a character contains an element of ugliness, and the same reader who, on his journey through life, would sit at the board of a character of this kind, and spend a most agreeable time with him, would be the first to look at him askance if he should appear in the guise of the hero of a novel or a play. But wise is the reader who, on meeting such a character, scans him carefully, and, instead of shrinking from him with distaste, probes him to the springs of his being. The human personality contains nothing which may not, in the twinkling of an eye, become altogether changed, nothing in which, before you can look around, there may not spring to birth some cankerous worm which is destined to suck thence the essential juice. Yes, it is a common thing to see not only an overmastering passion, but also a passion of the most petty order arise in a man who is born to better things, and lead him both to forget his greatest and most sacred obligations, and to see only in the various trifles the great and the holy. For human passions are as numberless as is the sand of the seashore, and go on to become his most insistent of masters. Happy, therefore, the man who may choose from among the gamut of human passions one which is noble. Hour by hour will that instinct grow and multiply in its measureless beneficence. Hour by hour will it sink deeper and deeper into the infinite paradise of his soul. But there are passions of which a man cannot rid himself, seeing that they are born with him at his birth, and he has no power to abjure them. Higher powers govern those passions, and in them is something which will call to him, and refuse to be silenced to the end of his life. Yes, whether in a guise of darkness, or whether in a guise which will become converted into a light to lighten the world, they will and must attain their consummation on life's field, and in either case they have been evoked for man's good. In the same way may the passion which drew our Chichikov onwards have been one that was independent of himself. In the same way may there have lurked even in his cold essence something which will one day cause men to humble themselves in the dust before the infinite wisdom of God. Yet that folk should be dissatisfied with my hero matters nothing. What matters is the fact that, under different circumstances, their approval could have been taken as a foregone conclusion. That is to say, had not the author pried over deeply into Chichikov's soul, nor stirred up in his death what shunned and lay hidden from the light, nor disclosed those of his hero's thoughts which that hero would not have disclosed even to his most intimate friend. 
Had the author, indeed, exhibited Chichikov just as he exhibited himself to the townsmen of N. and Manilov and the rest, well, then we may rest assured that every reader would have been delighted with him, and have voted him a most interesting person. For it is not nearly so necessary that Chichikov should figure before the reader as though his form and person were actually present to the eye, as that, on concluding a perusal of this work, the reader should be able to return, unharrowed in soul, to that cult of the car-table which is the solace and delight of all good Russians. Yes, readers of this book, none of you really care to see humanity revealed in its nakedness. Why should we do so, you say? What would be the use of it? Do we not know for ourselves that human life contains much that is gross and contemptible? Do we not with our own eyes have to look upon much that is anything but comforting? Far better would it be if you would put before us what is comely and attractive, so that we might forget ourselves a little. In the same fashion does a landowner say to his bailiff, Why do you come and tell me that the affairs of my estate are in a bad way? I know that without your help. Have you nothing else to tell me? Kindly allow me to forget the fact, or else to remain in ignorance of it, and I shall be much obliged to you. Whereafter the said landowner probably proceeds to spend on his diversion the money which ought to have gone towards the rehabilitation of his affairs. Possibly the author may also incur censure at the hands of those so-called patriots who sit quietly in corners and become capitalists through making fortunes at the expense of others. Yes, let but something which they conceive to be derogatory to their country occur. For instance, let there be published some book which voices the bitter truth, and out they will come from their hiding-places like a spider which perceives a fly to be caught in its web. Is it well to proclaim this to the world, and to set folk talking about it? they will cry. What you have described touches us is our affair. Is conduct of that kind right? What will foreigners say? Does anyone care calmly to sit by and hear himself traduced? Why should you lead foreigners to suppose that all is not well with us, and that we are not patriotic? Well, to these sage remarks no answer can really be returned, especially to such of the above as refer to foreign opinion. But see here. There once lived in a remote corner of Russia two natives of the region indicated. One of those natives was a good man named Kifa Mokievich, and a man of kindly disposition a man who went through life in a dressing-gown and paid no heed to his household, for the reason that his whole being was centred upon the province of speculation, and that, in particular, he was preoccupied with a philosophical problem usually stated by him thus. A beast, he would say, is born naked. Now, why should that be? Why should not a beast be born as a bird is born, that is to say, through the process of being hatched from an egg? Nature is beyond the understanding, however much one may probe her. This was the substance of Kifa Mokievich's reflections, but herein is not the chief point. The other of the pair was a fellow named Morfi Kifovich, and son to the first named. He was what we Russians call a hero, and while his father was pondering the parturition of beasts, his, the son's, lusty twenty-year-old temperament was violently struggling for development. Yet that son could tackle nothing without some accident occurring. At one moment would he crack someone's fingers in half, and at another would he raise a bump on somebody's nose, so that both at home and abroad, everyone and everything, from the serving-maid to the yard-dog, fled on his approach, and even the bed in his bedroom became shattered to splinters. Such was Mofi Kifovich, and with it all he had a kindly soul. But herein is not the chief point. Good sir, good Kifa Mokievich, 
Servants and neighbors would come and say to the father, "'What are you going to do about your Mofi Kivovich? "'We get no rest from him. "'He is so above himself.' "'That is only his play. "'That is only his play,' the father would reply. "'What else can you expect? "'It is too late now to start a quarrel with him, "'and moreover, everyone would accuse me of harshness. "'True, he is a little conceited, "'but were I to reprove him in public, "'the whole thing would become common talk, "'and folk would begin giving him a dog's name. "'And if they did that,' would not their opinion touch me also, seeing that I am his father? Also, I am busy with philosophy, and have no time for such things. Lastly, Mofi Kifovich is my son, and very dear to my heart. And, beating his breast, Kifa Mokievich again asserted that, even though his son should elect to continue his pranks, it would not be for him, for the father, to proclaim the fact, or to fall out with his offspring. And, this expression of paternal feeling uttered, Kifa Mokievich left Moki Kifovich to his heroic exploits, and himself returned to his beloved subject of speculation, which now included also the problem, suppose elephants were to take to being hatched from eggs, would not the shell of such eggs be of a thickness proof against cannonballs, and necessitate the invention of some new type of firearm? Thus, at the end of this little story, we have these two denizens of a peaceful corner of Russia, looking thence, as from a window, in less terror of doing what was scandalous than of having it said of them that they were acting scandalously. Yes, the feeling animating our so-called patriots is not true patriotism at all. Something else lies beneath it. Who, if not an author, is to speak aloud the truth? Men like you, my pseudo-patriots, stand in dread of the eye which is able to discern, yet shrink from using your own, and prefer, rather, to glance at everything unheedingly. Yes, after laughing heartily over Chichikov's misadventures, and perhaps even commending the author for his dexterity of observation and pretty turn of wit, you will look at yourselves with redoubled pride and a self-satisfied smile, and add, well, we agree that in certain parts of the provinces there exist strange and ridiculous individuals, as well as unconscionable rascals. Yet, which of you, when quiet and alone, and engaged in solitary self-communion, would not do well to probe your own souls, and to put to yourselves the solemn question, is there not in me an element of Chichikov? For how should there not be? Which of you is not liable at any moment to be passed in the street by an acquaintance who, nudging his neighbour, may say of you, with a barely suppressed sneer, Look, there goes Chichikov. That is Chichikov who has just gone by. But here we are talking at the top of our voices, whilst all the time our hero lies slumbering in his britchka. Indeed, his name has been repeated so often during the recital of his life's history that he must almost have heard us and at any time he is an irritable, irascible fellow when spoken of with disrespect. True, to the reader Chichikov's displeasure cannot matter a jot, but for the author it would mean ruin to quarrel with his hero, seeing that, arm in arm, Chichikov and he have yet far to go. Tut, 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 came in a shout from Chichikov. Hey, Selifan! What is it? came the reply, uttered with a drawl. What is it? Why, how dare you drive like that? Come! Bestir yourself a little. And indeed, Selifan had long been sitting with half-closed eyes and hands which bestowed no encouragement upon his somnolent steeds, save an occasional flicking of the reins against their flanks, whilst Petrushka had lost his cap and was leaning backwards until his head had come to rest against Chichikov's knees, a position which necessitated his being awakened with a cuff. 
Salafon also aroused himself, and apportioned to the skewbold a few cuts across the back of a kind which at least had the effect of inciting that animal to trot. And when, presently, the other two horses followed their companion's example, the little britchka moved towards like a piece of thistledown. Salafon flourished his whip and shouted, "'Aye, aye!' as the inequalities of the road jerked him vertically on his seat. And meanwhile, reclining against the leather cushions of the vehicle's interior, Chichikov smiled with gratification at the sensation of driving fast. For what Russian does not love to drive fast? Which of us does not at times yearn to give his horses their head, and to let them go, and to cry, To the devil with the world! At such moments a great force seems to uplift one as on wings, and one flies, and everything else flies, but contrariwise. Both the first stones and traders riding on the shafts of their wagons, and the forest with dark lines of spruce and fir amid which may be heard the axe of the woodcutter and the croaking of the raven. Yes, out of a dim, remote distance the road comes towards one, and while nothing save the sky and the light clouds through which the moon is cleaving her way seem halted, the brief glimpses wherein one can discern nothing clearly have in them a pervading touch of mystery. Ah, Troika, Troika, swift as a bird, who was it first invented you? Only among a hardy race of folk can you have come to birth. Only in a land which, though poor and rough, lies spread over half the world, and spans versts, the counting whereof would leave one with aching eyes. Nor are you a modishly fashioned vehicle of the road, a thing of clamps and iron. Rather, you are a vehicle but shapen and fitted with the axe or chisel of some handy peasant of Yaroslav. Nor are you driven by a coachman clothed in German livery, but by a man bearded and mittened. See him as he mounts, and flourishes his whip, and breaks into a long-drawn song. Away like the wind go the horses, and the wheels with their spokes become transparent circles, and the road seems to quiver beneath them, and a pedestrian, with a cry of astonishment, halts to watch the vehicle as it flies, flies, flies on its way, until it becomes lost on the ultimate horizon, a speck amid a cloud of dust. And you, Russia of mine, are not you also speeding like a troika which naught can overtake? Is not the road smoking beneath your wheels, and the bridges thundering as you cross them, and everything being left in the rear, and the spectators struck with the portent, halting to wonder whether you be not a thunderbolt launched from heaven? What does that awe-inspiring progress of yours foretell? What is the unknown force which lies within your mysterious steeds? Surely the winds themselves must abide in their manes, and every vein in their bodies be an ear stretched to catch the celestial message which bids them, with iron-girded breasts and hoofs which barely touch the earth as they gallop, fly forward on a mission of God. Whither, then, are you speeding, O Russia of mine? Whither? Answer me. But no answer comes only the weird sound of your color bells rent into a thousand shreds the air roars past you for you are overtaking the whole world and shall one day force all nations all empires to stand aside to give you way 1841 end of part 1 chapter 11「Dead Souls」by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol translated by D.J. Hogarth Part 2 
Chapter 1, Section 1, read by Anna Simon. Why do I so persistently paint the poverty, the imperfections of Russian life, and delve into the remotest deaths, the most retired holes and corners of our empire from our subjects? The answer is that there is nothing else to be done when an author's idiosyncrasy happens to incline him that way. So again we find ourselves in a retired spot. But what a spot! Imagine, if you can, a mountain range like a gigantic fortress, with embrasures and bastions, which appear to soar a thousand versts towards the heights of heaven, and, towering grandly over a boundless expanse of plain, are broken up into precipitous, overhanging limestone cliffs. Here and there those cliffs are seamed with watercourses and gullies, while at other points they are rounded off into spurs of green, spurs now coated with fleece-like tufts of young undergrowth, now studded with the stumps of felled trees, now covered with timber which has, by some miracle, escaped the woodman's axe. Also, a river winds a while between its banks, then leaves the meadowland, divides into runlets, all flashing in the sun like fire, plunges, reunited, into the midst of a thicket of elder, birth, and pine, and lastly, speeds triumphantly past bridges and mills and wares, which seem to be lying in wait for it at every turn. At one particular spot, the steep flank of the mountain range is covered with billowy verdure of denser growth than the rest, and here the aid of skilful planting, added to the shelter afforded by a rugged ravine, has enabled the flora of north and south so to be brought together that, twined about with sinuous hop tendrils, the oak, the spruce fir, the wild pear, the maple, the cherry, the thorn and the mountain ash either assist or check one another's growth and everywhere cover the declivity with their straggling profusion. Also, at the edge of the summit, there can be seen mingling with the green of the trees the red roofs of a manorial homestead, while behind the upper story is the mansion proper and its carved balcony and a great semicircular window there gleam the tiles and gables of some peasants' huts. Lastly, over this combination of trees and roofs, there rises, overtopping everything with its gilded, sparkling steeple, an old village church. On each of its pinnacles, a cross of carved gilt is stayed with supports of similar gilding and design, with the result that from a distance the gilded portions have the effect of hanging without visible agency in the air. And the whole, the three successive tiers of woodland, roofs, and crosses whole, lies exquisitely mirrored in the river below, where hollow willows, grotesquely shaped, some of them rooted on the river's banks, and some in the water itself, and all drooping their branches until their leaves have formed a tangle with the water-lilies which float on the surface, seem to be gazing at the marvellous reflection at their feet. Thus the view from below is beautiful indeed, but the view from above is even better. No guest, no visitor, could stand on the balcony of the mansion and remain indifferent. So boundless is the panorama revealed that surprise would cause him to catch at his breath and exclaim, Lord of heaven, but what a prospect! Beyond meadows studded with spinneys and watermills lie forests belted with green, while beyond, again, there can be seen showing through the slightly misty air strips of yellow heath, and again wide rolling forests, as blue as the sea or a cloud, and more heath, paler than the first, but still yellow. Finally, on the far horizon, a range of chalk-topped hills gleams white, even in dull weather, as though it were lightened with perpetual sunshine. 
and here and there on the dazzling whiteness of its lower slopes some plaster-like nebulous patches represent far-off villages which lie too remote for the eye to discern their details indeed only when the sunlight touches a steeple to gold does one realize that each such patch is a human settlement finally all is wrapped in an immensity of silence which even the far faint echoes of persons singing in the void of the plain cannot shatter even after gazing at the spectacle for a couple of hours or so the visitor would still find nothing to say save lord of heaven but what a prospect then who is the dweller in the proprietor of this manor a manor to which as to an impregnable fortress entrance cannot be gained from the side where we have been standing but only from the other approach where a few scattered oaks offer hospitable welcome to the visitor and then spreading above him their spacious branches as in friendly embrace accompany him to the facade of the mansion whose top we have been regarding from the reverse aspect but which now stands frontwise on to us and has on one side of it a row of peasants huts with red tiles and carved gables and on the other the village church with those glittering golden crosses and gilded open-work charms which seem to hang suspended in the air yes indeed to what fortunate individual does this corner of the world belong it belongs to andrei ivanovich tientietnikov landowner of the canton of tremalakan and withal a bachelor of about thirty should my lady readers ask of me what manner of man is tientietnikov and what are his attributes and peculiarities i should refer them to his neighbours of these a member of the almost extinct tribe of intelligent staff officers on the retired list once summed up tientietnikov in the phrase he is an absolute blockhead while a general who resided ten versts away was heard to remark that he is a young man who though not exactly a fool has at least too much crowded into his head i myself might have been of use to him for not only do i maintain certain connections with st petersburg but also and the general left his sentence unfinished thirdly a captain superintendent of rural police happened to remark in the course of conversation tomorrow i must go and see tchentchetnikov about his arrears lastly a peasant of tchentchetnikov's own village when asked what his baron was like returned no answer at all all of which would appear to show that Tientietnikov was not exactly looked upon with favour. To speak dispassionately, however, he was not a bad sort of fellow, merely a stargazer, and since the world contains many watchers of the skies, why should Tientietnikov not have been one of them? However, let me describe in detail a specimen day of his existence, one that will closely resemble the rest, and then the reader will be enabled to judge of Tientietnikov's character, and how far his life corresponded to the beauties of nature with which he lived surrounded. On the morning of the specimen day in question, he awoke very late, and, raising himself to a sitting posture, rubbed his eyes. And since those eyes were small, the process of rubbing them occupied a very long time, and throughout its continuance there stood waiting by the door his valet, Mikhailo, armed with a towel and basin. For one hour, for two hours, did poor Mikhailo stand there. Then he departed to the kitchen, and returned to find his master still rubbing his eyes as he sat on the bed. At length, however, Tientietnikov rose, washed himself, donned a dressing-gown, and moved into the drawing-room for morning tea, coffee, cocoa, and warm milk, of all of which he partook but sparingly, while munching a piece of bread, and scattering tobacco-ash with complete insouciance. Two hours did he sit over this meal, then poured himself out another cup of the rapidly cooling tea and walked to the window. 
This faced the courtyard, and, outside it, as usual, there took place the following daily altercation between a serf named Grigory, who purported to act as butler, and the housekeeper, Perfilievna. Grigory? Ah, you nuisance, you good for nothing, you'd better hold your stupid tongue. Perfilievna? Yes, and don't you wish that I would? Grigory? What? You so thick with a bailiff of yours, you housekeeping jade. Perfilievna? Nay, he's as big a thief as you are. Do you think the baron doesn't know you? And there he is. He must have heard everything. Grigory? Where? Perfilievna? There, sitting by the window and looking at us. Next, to complete the hubbub, a serf child which had been clouded by its mother broke out into a ball, while a borzoi puppy which had happened to get splashed with boiling water by the cook fell to yelping vociferously. In short, the place soon became a babel of shouts and squeals, and, after watching and listening for a time, the baron found it so impossible to concentrate his mind upon anything that he sent out word that the noise would have to be abated. The next item was that, a couple of hours before luncheon time, he withdrew to his study to set about employing himself upon a weighty work which was to consider Russia from every point of view, from the political, from the philosophical, and from the religious, as well as to resolve various problems which had arisen to confront the empire, and to define clearly the great future to which the country stood ordained. In short, it was to be the species of compilation in which the man of the day so much delights. Yet the colossal undertaking had progressed but little beyond the sphere of projection, since, after a pen had been gnawed a while, and a few strokes had been committed to paper, the whole would be laid aside in favour of the reading of some book, and that reading would continue also during luncheon, and be followed by the lighting of a pipe, the playing of a solitary game of chess, and the doing of more or less nothing for the rest of the day. The foregoing will give the reader a pretty clear idea of the manner in which it was possible for this man of thirty-three to waste his time. Clad constantly in slippers and a dressing-gown, Tientietnikov never went out, never indulged in any form of dissipation, and never walked upstairs. Nothing did he care for fresh air, and would bestow not a passing glance upon all those beauties of the countryside which moved visitors to such ecstatic admiration. From this, the reader will see that Andrei Ivanovich Tientietnikov belonged to that band of sluggards whom we always have with us, and who, whatever be their present appellation, used to be known by the nicknames of lollopers, bedpresses, and marmots. Whether the type is a type originating at birth, or a type resulting from untoward circumstances in later life, it is impossible to say. A better course than to attempt to answer that question would be to recount the story of Tientietnikov's boyhood and upbringing. Everything connected with the latter seemed to promise success, for at twelve years of age the boy, keen-witted but dream of temperament and inclined to delicacy, was sent to an educational establishment presided over by an exceptional type of master. The idol of his pupils and the admiration of his assistants, Alexander Petrovitch, was gifted with an extraordinary measure of good sense. How thoroughly he knew the peculiarities of the Russian of his day, how well he understood boys, how capable he was of drawing them out. Not a practical joker in the school, but, after perpetrating a prank, would voluntarily approach his preceptor and make to him free confession. True, the preceptor would put a stern face upon the matter, yet the culprit would depart with head held higher, not lower than before, since, in Alexander Petrovitch, there was something which hastened, something which seemed to say to a delinquent, Forward you, rise to your feet again, even though you have fallen. Not lectures on good behaviour was it, therefore, that fell from his lips, but rather the injunction, 
I want to see intelligence and nothing else. The boy who devotes his attention to becoming clever will never play the fool, for under such circumstances folly disappears of itself. And so folly did, for the boy who failed to strive in the desired direction incurred the contempt of all his comrades, and even dunces and fools of senior standing did not dare to raise a finger when saluted by their juniors with opprobrious epithets. Yet, this is too much, certain folk would say to Alexander. The result will be that your students will turn out prigs. But no, he would reply, not at all. You see, I make it my principle to keep the incapables for a single term only, since that is enough for them. But to the clever ones, I allot a double course of instruction. And, true enough, any lad of brains was retained for this finishing course. Yet he did not repress all boyish playfulness, since he declared it to be as necessary as a rash to a doctor, inasmuch as it enabled him to diagnose what lay hidden within. Consequently, how the boys loved him! Never was there such an attachment between master and pupils. And even later, during the foolish years, when foolish things attract, the measure of affection which Alexander Petrovitch retained was extraordinary. In fact, to the day of his death, every former pupil would celebrate the birthday of his late master by raising his glass in gratitude to the mentor dead and buried, then close his eyelids upon the tears which would come trickling through them. Even the slightest word of encouragement from Alexander Petrovitch could throw a lad into a transport of tremulous joy, and arouse in him an honourable emulation of his fellows. Boys of small capacity he did not long retain in his establishment, whereas those who possessed exceptional talent he put through an extra course of schooling. This senior class, a class composed of specially selected pupils, was a very different affair from what usually obtains in other colleges. Only when a boy had attained its ranks did Alexander demand of him what other masters indiscreetly require of mere infants, namely the superior frame of mind which, while never indulging in mockery, can itself bear ridicule, and disregard the fool, and keep its temper, and repress itself, and eschew revenge, and calmly, proudly retain its tranquillity of soul. In short, whatever avails to form a boy into a man of assured character, that did Alexander Petrovitch employ during the pupil's youth, as well as constantly put him to the test. How well he understood the art of life! Of assistant tutors he kept but few, since most of the necessary instruction he imparted in person, and, without pedantic terminology and inflated diction and views, could so transmit to his listeners the inmost spirit of a lesson that even the youngest present absorbed its essential elements. Also, of studies he selected none but those which may help a boy to become a good citizen, and therefore most of the lectures which he delivered consisted of discourses on what may be awaiting a youth as well as of such demarcations of life's field that the pupil, though seated as yet only at the desk, could beforehand bear his part in that field both in thought and spirit. Nor did the master conceal anything. That is to say, without mincing words, he invariably set before his hearers the sorrows and the difficulties which may confront a man, and the trials and the temptations which may beset him. And this he did in terms as though, in every possible calling and capacity, he himself had experienced the same. Consequently, either the vigorous development of self-respect or the constant stimulus of the master's eye, which seemed to say to the pupil, forward, that word which has become so familiar to the contemporary Russian, that word which has worked such wonders upon his sensitive temperament. 
one or the other, I repeat, would, from the first, cause the pupil to tackle difficulties, and only difficulties, and to hunger for prowess only where the path was arduous, and obstacles were many, and it was necessary to display the utmost strength of mind. Indeed, few completed the course of which I have spoken, without issuing therefrom reliable seasoned fighters who could keep their heads in the most embarrassing of official positions, and at times when older and wiser men, distracted with the annoyances of life, had either abandoned everything or, grown slack and indifferent, had surrendered to the bribe-takers and the rascals. In short, no ex-pupil of Alexander Petrovitch ever wavered from the right road, but, familiar with life and with men, armed with the weapons of prudence, exerted a powerful influence upon wrongdoers. For a long time past, the ardent young Tientietnikov's excitable heart had also beat at the thought that one day he might attain the senior class described. And, indeed, what better teacher could he have had before him than its preceptor? Yet just at the moment when he had been transferred thereto, just at the moment when he had reached the coveted position, did his instructor come suddenly by his death. This was indeed a blow for the boy, indeed a terrible initial loss. In his eyes, everything connected with the school seemed to undergo a change, the chief reason being the fact that to the place of the deceased headmaster there succeeded a certain Theodor Ivanovitch, who at once began to insist upon certain external rules and to demand of the boys what ought rightly to have been demanded only of adults. That is to say, since the lad's frank and open demeanour savoured to him only of lack of discipline, he announced, as though in deliberate spite of his predecessor, that he cared nothing for progress and intellect, but that heed was to be paid only to good behaviour. Yet, curiously enough, good behaviour was just what he never obtained, for every kind of secret prank became the rule, and while by day there reigned restraint and conspiracy, by night there began to take place chambering and wantonness. Also, certain changes in the curriculum of studies came about, for there were engaged new teachers who held new views and opinions, and confused their hearers with a multitude of new terms and phrases, and displayed in their exposition of things both logical sequence and the zest for modern discovery, and much warmth of individual bias. Yet their instruction, alas, contained no life. In the mouth of those teachers a dead language savoured merely of carrion. Thus everything connected with the school underwent a radical alteration, and respect for authority and the authorities waned, and tutors and ushers came to be dubbed old thedder, crusty, and the like, and sundry other things began to take place, things which necessitated many a penalty and expulsion, until within a couple of years no one who had known the school in former days would now have recognized it. Nevertheless, Tchentyatnikov, a youth of retiring disposition, experienced no leanings towards the nocturnal orgies of his companions, orgies during which the latter used to flirt with damsels before the very windows of the headmaster's rooms, nor yet towards their mockery of all that was sacred, simply because fate had cast in their way an injudicious priest. No, despite its dreaminess, its celestial origin, and could not be diverted from the path of virtue. Yet still he hung his head, for, while his ambition had come to life, it could find no sort of outlet. Truly it were well if it had not come to life, for throughout the time that he was listening to professors who gesticulated on their chairs, he could not help remembering the old preceptor, who, invariably cool and calm, had yet known how to make himself understood. To what subjects, to what lectures, did the boy not have to listen? 
to lectures on medicine and on philosophy and on law and on a version of general history so enlarged that even three years failed to enable the professor to do more than finish the introduction thereto, and also the account of the development of some self-governing towns in Germany. None of the stuff remained fixed in Tientietnikov's brain, save as shapeless clots, for though his native intellect could not tell him how instruction ought to be imparted, it at least told him that this was not the way. And frequently, at such moments, he would recall Alexander Petrovitch and give way to such grief that scarcely did he know what he was doing. But youth is fortunate in the fact that always before it there lies a future, and in proportion as the time for his leaving school drew nigh, Tchentchetnikov's heart began to beat higher and higher, and he said to himself, this is not life, but only a preparation for life. True life is to be found in the public service. There, at least, will there be scope for activity. So, bestowing another glance upon that beautiful corner of the world which never failed to strike the guest or chance visitor with amazement, and reverencing not a whit the dust of his ancestors, he followed the example of most ambitious men of his class by repairing to St. Petersburg, whither, as we know, the more spirited youth of Russia from every quarter gravitates, there to enter the public service, to shine, to obtain promotion, and, in a word, to scale the topmost peaks of that pale, cold, deceptive elevation which is known as society. But the real starting point of Tchetchetnikov's ambition was the moment when his uncle, one state councillor, Onifri Ivanovitch, instilled into him the maxim that the only means to success in the service lay in good handwriting, and that, without that accomplishment, no one could ever hope to become a minister or statesman. Thus, with great difficulty, and also with the help of his uncle's influence, young Tchentetnikov at length succeeded in being posted to a department. On the day that he was conducted into a splendid, shining hall, a hall fitted with inlaid floors and lacquered desks as fine as though this were actually the place where the great ones of the empire met for discussion of the fortunes of the state, on the day that he saw legions of handsome gentlemen of the quill-driving profession making loud scratchings with pens and cocking their heads to one side, lastly, on the day that he saw himself also allotted a desk, and requested to copy a document which appeared purposely to be one of the pettiest possible order. As a matter of fact, it related to a sum of three roubles and had taken half a year to produce. Well, at that moment, a curious, an unwanted sensation seized upon the inexperienced youth, for the gentlemen around him appeared so exactly like a lot of college students. And, the further to complete the resemblance, some of them were engaged in reading trashy translated novels, which they kept hurriedly thrusting between the sheets of their apportioned work whenever the director appeared, as though to convey the impression that it was to that work alone that they were applying themselves. In short, the scene seemed to Tchentchetnikov strange, and his former pursuits more important than his present, and his preparation for the service preferable to the service itself. Yes, suddenly he felt a longing for his old school, and as suddenly, and with all the vividness of life, there appeared before his vision the figure of Alexander Petrovitch. He almost burst into tears as he beheld his old master, and the room seemed to swim before his eyes, and the chinovniks and the desks to become a blur, and his sight to grow dim. Then he thought to himself with an effort, No! No, I will apply myself to my work, however petty it be at first. 
and hardening his heart and recovering his spirit, he determined then and there to perform his duties in such a manner as should be an example to the rest. But where are compensations to be found? Even in St. Petersburg, despite its grim and murky exterior, they exist. Yes, even though thirty degrees of keen cracking frost may have bound the streets, and the family of the north wind be wailing there, and the snowstorm which have heaped high the pavements, and be blinding the eyes, and powdering beards and fur collars and the shaggy manes of horses, even then there will be shining hospitably through the swirling snowflakes a fourth-floor window where, in a cosy room and by the light of modest candles and to the hiss of the samovar, there will be in progress a discussion which warms the heart and soul, or else a reading aloud of a brilliant page of one of those inspired Russian poets with whom God has dowered us, while the breast of each member of the company is heaving with a rapture unknown under a noontide sky. Gradually, therefore, Tchentyatnikov grew more at home in the service. Yet never did it become, for him, the main pursuit, the main object in life, which he had expected. No, it remained but one of a secondary kind. That is to say, it served merely to divide up his time, and enable him the more to value his hours of leisure. Nevertheless, just when his uncle was beginning to flatter himself that his nephew was destined to succeed in the profession, the said nephew elected to ruin his every hope. Thus it befell. Tchentyatnikov's friends, he had many, included among their number a couple of fellows of the species known as embitters. That is to say, though good-natured souls of that curiously restless type which cannot endure injustice, nor anything which it conceives to be such, they were thoroughly unbalanced of conduct themselves, and, while demanding general agreement with their views, treated those of others with the scantiest of ceremony. Nevertheless, these two associates, exercised upon Tchetjetnikov, both by the fire of their eloquence and by the form of their noble dissatisfaction with society, a very strong influence, with the result that, through arousing in him an innate tendency to nervous resentment, they led him also to notice trifles which before had escaped his attention. An instance of this is seen in the fact that he conceived against Theodor Theodorovich Lienitsin, director of one of the departments which was quartered in the splendid range of offices before mentioned, a dislike which proved the cause of his discerning in the man a host of hitherto unmarked imperfections. Above all things, did Tchentchetnikov take it into his head that, when conversing with his superiors, Lienitsin became, of the moment, a stick of luscious sweetmeat, but that, when conversing with his inferiors, he approximated more to a vinegar cruet. Certain it is that, like all petty-minded individuals, Lienitsin made a note of any one who failed to offer him a greeting on festival days, and that he revenged himself upon any one whose visiting card had not been handed to his butler. Eventually the youth's aversion almost attained the point of hysteria, until he felt that, come what might, he must insult the fellow in some fashion. To that task he applied himself con amore, and so thoroughly that he met with complete success. That is to say, he seized on an occasion to address Lienitsin in such fashion that the delinquent received notice either to apologies or to leave the service, and when of these alternatives he chose the latter, his uncle came to him and made a terrified appeal. "'For God's sake, remember what you are doing,' he cried. "'To think that, after beginning your career so well, you should abandon it merely for the reason that you have not fallen in with the sort of director whom you prefer. What do you mean by it?' What do you mean by it? Were others to regard things in the same way, the service would find itself without a single individual. 
Reconsider your conduct, forego your pride and conceit, and make Leonidsin amends. But, dear uncle, the nephew replied, that is not the point. The point is, not that I should find an apology difficult to offer, seeing that, since Leonidsin is my superior, and I ought not to have addressed him as I did, I am clearly in the wrong. Rather, the point is the following. To my charge there has been committed the performance of another kind of service. That is to say, I am the owner of three hundred peasant souls, a badly administered estate, and the fool of a bailiff. That being so, whereas the state will lose little by having to fill my stool with another copyist, it will lose very much by causing three hundred peasant souls to fail in the payment of their taxes. As I say, how am I to put it? I am a landowner who has preferred to enter the public service. Now, should I employ myself henceforth in conserving, restoring, and improving the fortunes of the souls whom God has entrusted to my care, and thereby provide the state with three hundred law-abiding, sober, hard-working taxpayers, how will that service of mine rank as inferior to the service of a department-directing fool like Leonidsin? On hearing this speech, the state councillor could only gape, for he had not expected Tientietnikov's torrent of words. He reflected a few moments, and then murmured, "'Yes, but... but... but how can a man like you retire to rustication in the country? What society will you get there? Here one meets at least a general or a prince sometimes. Indeed, no matter whom you pass in the street, that person represents gas lamps and European civilization. But in the country, no matter what part of it you are in, not a soul is to be encountered save mushiks and their women.' Why should you go and condemn yourself to a state of vegetation like that? Nevertheless, the uncle's expostulations fell upon deaf ears, for already the nephew was beginning to think of his estate as a retreat of a type more likely to nourish the intellectual faculties and afford the only profitable field of activity. After unearthing one or two modern works on agriculture, therefore, he, two weeks later, found himself in the neighborhood of the home where his boyhood had been spent, and approaching the spot which never failed to enthrall the visitor or guest. And in the young man's breast there was beginning to palpitate a new feeling. In the young man's soul there were reawakening old, long-concealed impressions, with the result that many a spot which had long been faded from his memory now filled him with interest, and the beautiful views on the estate found him gazing at them like a newcomer, and with a beating heart. Yes, as the road wound through a narrow ravine and became engulfed in a forest where, both above and below, he saw three centuries-old oaks which three men could not have spanned, and where Siberian firs and elms overtopped even the poplars, and as he asked the peasants to tell him to whom the forest belonged, and they replied, to Tientietnikov, and he issued from the forest and proceeded on his way through meadows and past spinnies of elder and of old and young willows, and arrived in sight of the distant range of hills, and, crossing by two different ridges the winding river, which he left successively to right and to left of him as he did so. He again questioned some peasants concerning the ownership of the meadows and the flooded lands, and was again informed that they all belonged to Tchentchetnikov, and then, ascending a rise, reached a tableland where, on one side, lay ungarnered fields of wheat and rye and barley, and on the other the country already traversed, but which now showed in shortened perspective, and then plunged into the shade of some forked, umbrageous trees which stood scattered over the turf and extended to the manor-house itself, and caught glimpses of the carved huts of the peasants and of the red roofs of the stone manorial outbuildings, 
and of the glittering pinnacles of the church, and felt his heart beating, and knew, without being told by anyone, whither he had at length arrived. Well, then the feeling which had been growing within his soul burst forth, and he cried in ecstasy, "'Why have I been a fool so long? Why, seeing that fate has appointed me to be ruler of an earthly paradise, did I prefer to bind myself in servitude as a scribe of lifeless documents? To think that, after I had been nurtured and schooled and stored with all the knowledge necessary for the diffusion of good among those under me, and for the improvement of my domain, and for the fulfilment of the manifold duties of a landowner who is at once judge, administrator, and constable of his people, I should have entrusted my estate to an ignorant bailiff, and sought to maintain an absentee guardianship over the affairs of serfs whom I have never met, and of whose capabilities and characters I am yet ignorant. To think that I should have deemed true estate management inferior to a documentary, fantastical management of provinces which lie a thousand versts away, and which my foot has never trod, and where I could never have effected aught but blunders and irregularities. Meanwhile, another spectacle was being prepared for him. On learning that the baron was approaching the mansion, the mushiks collected on the veranda in every variety of picturesque dress and tonsure, and when these good folk surrounded him, and there arose a resounding shout of, "'Here is our foster-father! He has remembered us!' And, in spite of themselves, some of the older men and women began weeping as they recalled his grandfather and great-grandfather. He himself could not restrain his tears, but reflected, "'How much affection! And in return for what? In return for my never having come to see them! In return for my never having taken the least interest in their affairs!' and then and there he registered a mental vow to share their every task and occupation. So he applied himself to supervising and administering. He reduced the amount of the bashchina, he decreased the number of working days for the owner, and he augmented the sum of the peasant's leisure time. Footnote, bashchina. In the days of serfdom, the rate of forced labor, so many hours or so many days per week, which the serf had to perform for his proprietor. And footnote. He also dismissed the fool of a bailiff, and took to bearing a personal hand in everything, to being present in the fields, at the threshing-floor, at the kilns, at the wharf, at the freighting of barges and rafts, and at their conveyance down the river. Wherefore even the lazy hands began to look to themselves. But this did not last long. The peasant is an observant individual, and Jenjetnikov's musics soon centred the fact that, though energetic and desirous of doing much, the baron had no notion how to do it, nor even how to set about it, that, in short, he spoke by the book rather than out of his personal knowledge. Consequently, things resulted not in master and men failing to understand one another, but in their not singing together, in their not producing the very same note. That is to say, it was not long before Tchentchetnikov noticed that on the manorial lands nothing prospered to the extent that it did on the peasants. The manorial crops were sown in good time, and came up well, and every one appeared to work his best, so much so that Tchentchetnikov, who supervised the whole, frequently ordered mugs of vodka to be served out as a reward for the excellence of the labour performed. Yet the rye on the peasant's land had formed into ear, and the oats had begun to shoot their grain, and the millet had filled, before, on the manorial lands, the corn had so much as grown to stalk, or the ears had sprouted in embryo. In short, gradually the baron realized that, in spite of favors conferred, the peasants were playing the rogue with him. 
Next he resorted to remonstrance, but was met with the reply, "'How could we not do our best for our baron? You yourself saw how well we laboured at the ploughing and the sowing, for you gave us mugs of vodka for our pains.' "'Then why have things turned out so badly?' the baron persisted. "'Who can say? It must be that a grub has eaten the crop from below. Besides, what a summer has it been! Never a drop of rain!' Nevertheless, the baron noted that no grub had eaten the peasants' crops, as well as that the rain had fallen in the most curious fashion, namely, in patches. It had obliged the moujiks, but had shed a mere sprinkling for the baron. Still more difficult did he find it to deal with the peasant women. Ever and anon they would beg to be excused from work, or start making complaints of the severity of the barstchina. Indeed, they were terrible folk. However, Tchentchetnikov abolished the majority of the tithes of linen, hedge-fruit, mushrooms, and nuts, and also reduced by one-half other tasks proper to the women, in the hope that they would devote their spare time to their own domestic concerns, namely to sewing and mending, and to making clothes for their husbands, and to increasing the area of their kitchen gardens. Yet no such result came about. On the contrary, such a pitch did the idleness, the quarrelsomeness, and the intriguing and cabaling of the fair sex attain that their helpmeets were forever coming to the baron with a request that he would rid one or another of his wife, since she had become a nuisance, and to live with her was impossible. Next, hardening his heart, the baron attempted severity. But of what avail was severity? The peasant woman remained always the peasant woman and would come and whine that she was sick and ailing, and keep pitifully hugging to herself the mean and filthy rags which she had done for the occasion. And when poor Tchentchetnikov found himself unable to say more to her than just, "'Get out of my sight, and may the Lord go with you!' The next item in the comedy would be that he would see her, even as she was leaving his gates, fall to contending with a neighbour for, say, the possession of a turnip, and dealing out slaps in the face such as even a strong, healthy man could scarcely have compassed. End of Part 2, Chapter 1, Section 1